What's going on, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to welcome back Dr. James DeNicolantonio, cardiovascular research scientist and author of the new book, Superfuel, Ketogenic Keys to Unlock the Secrets of Good Fats, Bad Fats, and Great Health. This episode of the show is going to be all about the fats that heal and the fats that kill. I really wanted to make use of James's background and research, so we're going to go a little little bit deeper on this podcast, which I think that you're going to appreciate. Among the many things that you're going to learn, you're going to discover why you probably want to store your omega-3s in the freezer, how omega-3s can help with fat loss and building muscle, exactly what to look out for when choosing an omega-3 supplement, the differences between krill oil and fish oil, the benefits of omega-3s for heart health, and why studies examining the power of fish oil to prevent cardiovascular disease often seem to contradict one another. And you're going to find out just how dangerous polyunsaturated grain and seed oil like corn, canola, and soybean oil are from the standpoint of gut health and heart health. They're almost worse than sugar. But of course, in the modern food environment, it's difficult, if not impossible, to avoid them entirely. And so what you're also going to learn, thankfully, is how to protect yourself. This is going to be a biochemistry masterclass on omega-3s and omega-6 fats. You're definitely going to want to listen all the way through to the end. Speaking of healthy fats, I want to talk a little bit about the power of exogenous ketones to boost your health. Exogenous ketones can help ensure a pipeline of ketones to the brain, which displace its utilization of glucose. This is a good thing because as I've discussed in my book Genius Foods, ketones are a cleaner burning fuel source than glucose, and also impart numerous epigenetic benefits via their signaling capabilities. There are a number of ketone formulations on the market, but I find that straight MCT oil or powder is the easiest for adherence because they have no taste. Nonetheless, they get metabolized in the liver to ketones whether or not glucose is available in circulation. The exogenous ketone source that I'm digging lately is Perfect Keto, which puts MCTs in all types of products like coffee, matcha mixes, salted caramel drinks, and more. All zero carbs, sweetened with stevia or monk fruit. And the founder happens to be a friend of mine. His name is Anthony Gustin. He's got a great podcast, and I look forward to hosting him on this podcast sometime in the near future. Nonetheless, if you'd like to give exogenous ketones a try, you can go over to perfectketo.com max10 for $10 off an order of $30 or more. I honestly use their stuff all the time, including one of their uh, incredible collagen powders, which combines collagen um, from grass-fed cows with MCT oil powder. It's like a delicious chocolate drink. You can have it hot or iced. Really good stuff. So again, that's perfectketo.com slash max10. You'll get to save $10 off your order of 30 bucks or more, baby. Those are good savings. All right, now before we get to the show with Dr. DeNicola Antonio, which I know you're going to get a lot from, it would mean the world to me if you'd take a moment to head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a rating and a review. I promise you it helps the podcast rise up the ranks and add social proof so that more people are inclined to listen to it. We're building a community here, friends, of like-minded individuals that want more out of society, out of life, for their health, for themselves and their loved ones. And you can help it grow by leaving that rating and review or by sharing this podcast on social media. Whatever floats your boat. Do one or the other or both. Either way, I'm grateful. All right, guys, thank you for listening to my intro. I am pumped to get into this discussion on good fats, bad fats, and more. So without further ado, here is Dr. DeNicola Antonio. James, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me, Max. Oh, dude, it's uh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited for this conversation. So why don't we begin with your background, and why don't you tell us why you decided to write this book? Yes, yeah, so um, my name's Dr. James Antonio. I'm a cardiovascular research scientist and a doctor of pharmacy. Um, basically, you know, 
I've been publishing in the medical literature for almost a decade, um, mainly on nutrition, nutrients, um, and really the reason why I wanted to write Superfuel is because I've been publishing on omega-3s for over half a decade. And what, what I've been kind of harping on is that we've been underdosing omega-3s in, in some of the recent studies. And really, um, you know, the, the book is also about, you know, ketogenic diets are super in right now. And I think people are doing some things right, and but they're also doing a lot of things wrong. And when you have a macronutrient like fat making up, you know, 70, 80% of the calories, if you get that wrong, you can potentially be, you know, making your health worse. And so really the reason why I wanted to write the book is to kind of just set the record straight on what are the healthy fats and what foods should we really be consuming? Because I think, you know, a lot of people think keto is just butter and bacon. And, you know, this book is really to kind of help people enhance their, their diet, their ketogenic diet. Why did you choose to take a ketogenic route? Was that sort of the path that you found to be the most beneficial from a health standpoint? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I think the book was more around taking the path of good fats, bad fats, but then also kind of showing how the fats that you eat actually can determine how good you burn fat and how well you go into ketosis. So, you know, it's more about good fats versus bad fats than I would say ketogenic diets, but we definitely have a little bit of a ketogenic spin in there as well. Yeah. I mean, I like to say that when you're eating a a nutrient dense whole food diet that incorporates healthy animal products, you're inevitably going to spend at least some of your time in ketosis, whether or not you're, whether or not that's your goal. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned omega-3s and you're a leading authority on the role of omega-3s in heart health. Why do you think that Cochrane stating that, um, you know, based on, on their meta-analysis that omega-3s were not useful for heart disease prevention? Because I know that that I think it's worth discussing because, you know, we've seen numerous randomized control trials showing benefit from taking omega-3s. What's your take on that? Yeah, so I think you you bring up a good point. There's a tremendous amount of confusion right now, even among leading authorities in, you know, um, among doctors. So even the editor-in-chief of Medscape, Eric Topol, you know, up until probably pretty recently, his view has always been, we now have the evidence that omega-3s just don't benefit people in regards to, you know, reducing the risk of heart attacks, strokes, all-cause mortality. Now, as I kind of alluded to before, the problem is, is you had a lot of studies in the 1990s looking at a different population showing benefit with omega-3. So they were looking at Italians and Japanese who have a very low background intake of omega-6. And so the problem is, is these more recent studies have been looking at more American populations with an omega-6 to three ratio of 20 to 30 to one. Mm. So when you give one gram of omega-3s on top of a diet that's 20 to 30 times higher in omega-6, you're just not going to show benefit. And really, you know, I've responded to some of those meta-analyses basically saying that. And the other factor is that the dose itself isn't high enough. So in order to get the blood pressure lowering effects of omega-3s, the triglyceride lowering effects, the plaque stabilizing, the atherosclerotic plaque stabilizing effects, the antiplatelet effects. You need to hit about three to four grams of EPA and DHA, which are the long chain marine omega-3s. And every single study up until a recent study with early results that came out about a week and a half, two weeks ago, 
have only ever tested one gram. And so what's interesting is, you know, after the book was written, obviously I didn't know about the study that came out a couple of weeks ago, but it tested four grams of EPA. It was called the Reduce It study. On top of in people who had high triglycerides, either cardiovascular disease or they had diabetes plus one additional cardiovascular risk factor. And they gave four grams of EPA, a highly concentrated EPA. So it was four grams of the um, VSEPA, but it was about probably about 3.7 to 3.9 grams of EPA. And it showed a 25% reduction in cardiovascular events on top of a statin. So that, so that kind of almost proved what I've been saying for over half a decade is we've just been underdosing the omega-3s. When it comes to dose, would you say four grams is about what it takes to move the needle for your average person consuming a standard American diet? Yeah. And if that's, if that's the case, then what would be, you know, a reasonable dose for somebody who is eating a diet like you and I, you know, like a whole foods, omnivorous, grass-fed, lots of fatty fish sort of uh, diet? So I... If you're gonna, if you're consuming like a standard American diet with a background intake of omega six of about twenty grams, even if you consume about four grams of omega three EPA DHA, you're only going to get your omega three index to about six percent, and really the maximum benefits seem to be around eight to ten to even twelve percent omega three index. So if you're consuming a standard American diet, you probably need at least four grams of EPA and DHA, more pro- maybe even more like six. Um, six to maybe even eight, um, which sounds a lot, but the, but one of the best ways that people can actually improve their omega-3 index if they're eating a, a standard American diet is simply lower the omega-6 because omega-6 linoleic acid, which is the parent omega-6 that gets elongated to arachidonic acid, mm-hmm. that can actually kick out EPA and DHA out of the cell membrane. And so if you're not lowering that, it's very difficult to get that omega-3 index above 6%, which is why you need such high doses if you're consuming the omega-6. If you're a typical person like me and you, I still believe that we probably want about 4 grams of EPA and DHA, simply because that's the doses that have been shown to have all the benefits of omega-3s. Um, and, and certainly if you want to get to that 8 to 10%, even if you're consuming a fairly low omega-6 intake, you're still going to need probably about 4 grams. Um to, to get to the optimal levels. And I, and the reason why I believe that 10, 12% of, uh, for the omega-3 index seems optimal is because if you look at the, the jealous trial, which was a Japanese study where the background intake of omega-3s was, they already had a 10% omega-3 index and they gave them almost two grams of EPA. And that still provided benefit on top of an omega-3 index of about 10%. So their omega-3 index probably went up to about 12, 13% and still showed dramatic benefit in reducing um, cardiovascular events. So I I think that people are just dramatically underdosing. So it seems that for some people, it's, you know, attaining a more optimal omega-3 index is going to be about consuming more fish oil, but you can just as easily balance that equation by reducing your omega-6s. Is that accurate? Yeah. So you, you definitely want to do both. You want to lower omega-6, but you also want to up your omega-3 intake. And a lot of people, including myself, even a few years ago, I was like, how the heck are we getting such high doses of omega-3s? Like, if it's so beneficial and it's showing all these benefits, like you would think that we would be getting those like during evolutionary times. And it never made a lot, a whole lot of sense to me until I uncovered studies that found 
um, you know, ancient humans living over 2 million years ago in East Africa. There were numerous uh, sites that they dug up where our ancient ancestors were surrounded by animal skulls with holes crack, you know, cracking open dozens and dozens of animal skulls. So they were consumed. Basically, our ancient ancestor ancestors had a steady supply of omega-3s, either seafood if they live near the coast. If they didn't, the only animal that can crack open a skull is a hyena. And so we could we were just literally scavenging animal skulls on the African savanna and consuming the brain content. Now, brain actually is an extremely concentrated source of DHA bound in the phospholipid form, which is even more beneficial because in order for you to absorb DHA, which is a long-chain marine omega-3 into the brain, you have to bind it to phosphatidylcholine. So only lysophosphatidylcholine bound DHA gets into the brain. And so we were consuming brain, um, and it's actually 30% more concentrated than salmon in DHA. So if you consume just four ounces, let's say, of, of brain, you're getting, um, you know, probably like over a gram of DHA. Uh, so, and it was readily available to us because no other animal, lions can't crack open skulls and no other animals are really getting to it except hyenas. So when I, when I learned that, I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense that, that we were literally getting high marine omega-3s, not near the seas. And the other way we were getting it is we used to consume a tremendous amount of ALA back in evolutionary times. So ALA is the parent omega-3, alpha-linolenic acid. And how we were getting it, we were getting it through consuming a lot of plants. And we were getting about 10 times the amount of ALA that we get today. So we, we were getting about 10 to 15 grams, whereas we only get about one and a half, two grams of ALA. And so, uh, you know, basically women to childbearing age, they can convert about over 20% of EPA or of ALA to EPA, and they can convert 10% of ALA to DHA. And so we were getting a tremendous amount of DHA in utero um, back during evolutionary times. Basically, our brains were just becoming saturated in DHA from our mothers consuming high amounts of omega-3s, both plant and, you know, animal sourced marine omega-3s. And then we were also breastfed a lot longer. And the DHA content um, in breast milk was much higher than it was nowadays. And so we were getting, we were dosed for anywhere from two to four years being breastfed with this high DHA breast milk. Wow, that's incredible. I can't get over the fact that we consumed brains. I mean, it, it completely makes sense. Okay. Have you gone to your local Whole, Whole Foods to see if you could find any brains or, uh, I mean, no, I, I, I haven't. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you can get, you know, raw brain and cook it, but I mean, I don't think most people are trying to do that. So the, the easiest way to basically get that, but not consume brain is really krill oil. So you're getting phospholipid bound DHA from krill, which is why I take about three to four grams of krill plus I'll take about three to four grams of fish oil on days I'm not consuming wild seafood. The fish oil that you take, is it um, the ethyl ester form or is it the triglyceride form? And is there, can you describe what the, what the difference is between the two for listeners? Yeah, that's a, that's a great um, point you bring up. So what kind of Max is trying to allude to is there's different forms of omega-3s. Most prescription fish oil is very pure 
where when it's when you're given four grams of fish oil, you're getting 85 to 95 percent of that oil being EPA and DHA. The problem is is that most prescription fish oils are ethyl ester bound omega threes, and so unless you're consuming it with fat, the absorption of bioavailability is only about 30 percent, which is why they have to be so pure for them to work. And then if you consume those ethyl ester omega-3s with fat, you can up its bioavailability from 30% to about 70%. So if you're not consuming prescription fish oils with with some type of fat, you're really only getting about 40% of the benefit. And then you have um, triglyceride-bound omega-3s and phospholipid-bound omega-3s. And so most over-the-counter fish oil is triglyceride-bound. Um, where the bioavailability is about 90%. Um, so very good bioavailability with triglyceride-bound omega-3s. And then, you know, it's even better when you bind the omega-3s to phospholipids as found in krill oil. Particularly, again, the getting the DHA into the brain because there's a transporter that just won't take up DHA unless it's bound to lysophosphatidylcholine. So those are the three differences between ethyl ester, triglyceride-bound, and phospholipid-bound omega-3s. So in an ideal world, we'd be getting the triglyceride EPA and we'd be getting DHA in its phospholipid form. Pretty much. And what form? What forms are they typically found in when we consume fish? So typically triglyceride. Um, you, you get a little bit of phospholipid, um, but it's mo- it's mainly triglyceride bound, which is also kind of why I like to consume uh, krill oil as well. Not not to mention all the other benefits like the the astaxanthin that you get, but you also get the astaxanthin from from wild seafood as well. Um, so really, the reason also why I like krill oil too is because unless you're consuming about seven ounces of wild salmon every single day, you're not going to be hitting amounts of astaxanthin that have been able to show benefit in clinical studies. So you want at least about four milligrams and you got to consume seven ounces of wild salmon every single day. And that's kind of cost prohibitive for most people. Um, So, you know, the reason why I'll alternate wild seafood with um, fish oil and krill oil is to also get the astaxanthin from the krill oil. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of astaxanthin. Um, episode 16 with Dr. William Sears, we talked quite a bit about astaxanthin, and I, you know, I, I it's one of the uh, few supplements in my arsenal that I've been taking for over a decade now from Nutrex Bioastin, which is a, a great brand. I take about actually 24 milligrams every single day. But why is astaxanthin so beneficial? So first of all, 24 milligrams is I honestly don't think that's too high. A lot of people may their eyebrows may have kind of risen when when you said that. But to be honest, um, there's clinical studies that show that there is a dose-dependent antioxidant effect. So um, kudos to you to hitting hitting probably an optimal dose. So what astaxanthin is, is it is a microalgae carotenoid. Basically, it's it's found in microalgae and the krill feed off of that. And they, they basically have this astaxanthin bound to triglyceride phospholipid form. So it's a highly bioavailable astaxanthin as well. And what astaxanthin does, I mean, it is an antioxidant, but it's it's unique versus vitamin C and vitamin E because it doesn't form a pro-oxidant 
once it scavenges a free radical. So it can accept or donate an electron. And so vitamin C and vitamin E, when they do that, they form a pro-oxidant. So they got to kind of recycle each other. Astaxanthin doesn't do that. It doesn't form a pro-oxidant. And it can ex- it can squelch, I think, up to 37 free radicals per astaxanthin molecule. Um, so it's extremely, it's a very potent antioxidant. I mean, it's about 550 times more potent than vitamin E. And what's super cool about it is its structure allows it to span the, um, the phospholipid bilayer. So what you have is there's, you know, a, a basically this phospholipid bilayer that surrounds all our cell membranes and astaxanthin structure is it is a fat soluble in the middle of its structure and then it's water soluble rings on each end. And so it can sit basically at the top of the cellular membrane, protecting the cell membrane from outside damage and also spans the transmembrane phospholipid to prevent the lipids from oxidizing in the cell membrane, which is, I mean, the cellular membrane oxidizing and the lip, those fats, those fatty tails oxidizing is really at the heart of a lot of our disease because you're only as healthy as your cell membrane. So by having astaxanthin molecules spanning the membrane and protecting the the highly susceptible polyunsaturated fats from oxidizing in your cell membrane, and you need those unsaturated fats to keep the cell membrane fluid and basically not be stiff so all the transport molecules on the cell membrane aren't being pinched and working well. So the hormone receptors sit on the cell membrane ion transporters sit on the cell membrane, you want to have a good amount of omega-3s in there to not pinch on those membranes. Problem is they're susceptible to oxidation. And so your key to protect those omega-3s in the brain, in your cell membranes, red blood cells, is to basically saturate those cell membranes with astaxanthin. I, I often get some questions. People tend to get confused about the term oxidation. So can you kind of describe what oxidation really is from a biochemical standpoint? Because sometimes we hear about oxidation in a negative context, obviously, when discussing oxidative stress and, you know, omega-3s and omega-6s becoming oxidized. But then people talk about fat oxidation when discussing fat burning. Yes. Um, so what what's really the meaning of oxidation in both of those contexts? The two differences are you're oxidizing a fat in your body, um, like a free radical oxidation, which is obviously bad. Um, basically, the double bonds are susceptible to free radical attack, and then they form, um, basically, they become, they have like, after they're attacked from, you know, whatever type of oxidative stress is attacking those double bonds, which are susceptible it forms basically a free radical, which can then continually attack and damage further molecules down the line, which is bad. And then you have good fat oxidation, really, which is beta oxidation in your liver where you're burning fat for fuel. And so that the book Superfuel obviously discusses, you know, the difference between those two and why and, and ways that, that your dietary fat controls your own fat burning. How does your dietary fat control your fat burning? Yeah. And see, uh, that's like the most important part about the book is where I I think a lot of people are getting ketogenic diets wrong is 
they're not they're focusing on just ketone levels and they're not focusing on fat oxidation in the liver and actually losing fat off the body so you can have high ketone levels you can be eating sticks of butter and you can be burning a lot of fat because you're eating a lot of fat doesn't mean you're actually losing fat off your body and so in order to lose the fat off your body you have to upregulate beta oxidation and fat burning your own machinery in the liver and one of the best ways to do that is to consume marine omega-3s because they control the genes that activate beta oxidation in the liver. And so to give you an example, if you consume about three grams of EPA and DHA, your beta oxidation at rest, your fat burning at rest goes up by 20% just by consuming three grams of omega-3s. Wow. And during exercise, your beta oxidation goes up by 30%. So you're literally burning more fat for the same calories you're burning when you're consuming three, four grams of EPA and DHA. Um, and so it goes to show you that, you know, it's not just about calories in, calories out. It's, you know, controlling your own metabolic machinery with your diet and improving your own fat burning capacity. And the other way marine omega-3s contribute to weight loss is DHA is the pacemaker of the cell membrane. And so we were kind of talking a little bit about how the cell membrane fluidity is controlled by the polyunsaturated, especially the long chain polyunsaturated fats, particularly DHA, because DHA has six um, double bonds. So it, it gets its double bonds really deep into the cell membrane, even more so than EPA. Um, and so the deeper you get double bonds, the much more fluid the cell membrane becomes. And so that fluidity is important for those ion transporters and hormone transporters to work well. And so when you consume three to four grams of marine omega-3s, um, your ability to get amino acids in and out of the cell, glucose, potassium, sodium, the speed at which they go in and out of the cell goes up tremendously where mm. your basal metabolic rate, you burn an extra hundred calories more every single day by taking in about three to four grams of omega-3s. And that's the reason why hummingbirds are able to beat their wings 80 times a second they're able to saturate their wings with DHA. And because they, the DHA makes the cell membrane so fluid, all those molecules, glucose, amino acids fly in and out of the cell. And that's why hummingbirds can beat their wings so fast. So almost become a hummingbird in a way, saturate your cell membranes with omega-3s. You can become a better fat burning machine. Your overall basal metabolic rate will go up and you'll burn more fat doing th the same amount of effort. What's the proportion of DHA in muscle cells as compared to brain cells? I mean, is it is it comparable? Because I tend to think about the value of DHA in the brain cell membrane, but is it just as ubiquitous, you know, although perhaps less concentrated yeah. throughout the body? So how I view DHA, to be 100% honest, I've never looked at muscle cell DHA versus EPA. So I literally don't know, and I don't know the difference between the concentration of muscle DHA versus brain. So I'll kind of level set with saying that. But what I, what I will tell you is that DHA is more of a storage omega-3. And so things like your heart and your brain are the most saturated in DHA. And EPA is more of like a circulating omega-3. That's how I kind of compare the two. Got it. Um, and so um, the reason why EPA is important as well is because it kind of lowers the systemic circulation because it's more of a circulating omega-3, whereas you want DHA in the cell, let's say in the heart cell, to be 
secreted out of the cardiomyocyte to kind of have its antiarrhythmic effects. So you want to store a lot of DHA and you want to have a high circulating EPA content. But when they do an omega-3 index, what are they measuring with that test, for example? Yeah. So they're looking at red blood cell omega-3s. So I believe they combine both EPA and DHA. Um, don't quote me on that, but it is that's basically what they're measuring is long chain marine omega-3s in the red blood cell. Super interesting. And have you um, been able to uncover any research on uh, omega-3s in terms of, um, you know, muscle building? I've seen a a handful of studies showing that, you know, they can be beneficial um, for anabolism, but I was wondering what what you found. Yes, I cover that extensively in the book too. Um, So basically... Again, the three to four gram EPA DHA dose is is where you see a lot of benefits in not just elderly, but also, um, you know, basically middle-aged adults um, where, where they give three to four grams of EPA and DHA. And the reason why muscle protein synthesis goes up when you saturate the cell membranes with long chain marine omega-3s. So again, the amino acids can move in and out of the cell quicker and Omega long chain marine omega threes also help stimulate mTOR, which you know helps increase muscle protein synthesis as well and muscle building. So you're 100 right. Omega threes aren't just good for burning fat; they're good for promoting not just um, muscle synthesis, but also muscle strength, grip strength. It's been shown long chain omega threes improve. Um, and it reduces sarcopenia as well. So it lowers inflammation and reduces muscle protein breakdown from its anti-inflammatory effects. So you're building more muscle. You're also reducing its breakdown from the inflammation that can occur in the body. And so that's how it helps build more muscle as well, but it also helps build any type of protein, including collagen. So your connective tissue as well, marine omega-3s improve. So super important fat that controls your health, your protein health as well. I love it. Is there any danger to consuming too many omega-3s and perhaps throwing the omega-3 to omega-6 balance out of whack? I mean, for example, uh, you know, consuming more omega-3s and omega-6s? Yeah, I don't think there's a huge danger um, because the actual randomized studies show that even if you give four grams of EPA and DHA, even to someone who is like undergoing surgery, there's no significant increase in major bleeding. There might be a a slightly increased risk of minor bleeds, like nosebleeds and things like that. Um, But in general, even high doses of omega-3s, because we evolved on consuming such high doses of omega-3s, our body, you know, has a way and knows what to do with it. If you're, if you're getting too much and there's very little risk. The, what I will say is you do want to consume a supplement that is highly controlled. Really, you want to consume a supplement that'll even test for the hydroperoxides in fish oil because fish oil is susceptible to oxidation. So you want a highly high quality product. You want a fish oil that is sourced from a wild seafood. You don't want to be consuming like farm raised fish oil. That's like the worst thing you can do. Hmm. And then what's really cool is I, I mean, I consume a, a fish oil supplement where they use olive oil leaf polyphenols into the omega three to reduce its susceptibility to oxidize. Um, and you don't really have to worry about that with astaxanthin because it already has, or uh, krill oil because it already has astaxanthin in there. But with fish oil, you know, you do kind of want a product that has some vitamin E or some other type of polyphenol to help prevent it from oxidizing. 
Super important. What are some other things that we should be looking out for when choosing a, a fish oil supplement? Um, yeah. So another thing um, besides wild source, besides trying to consume one that contains some polyphenols and antioxidants, um, is you you want us how you store your fish oil. I store my fish oil in the freezer. It dramatically reduces its susceptibility to oxidation. In the freezer. In the freezer. And it won't freeze, Max, because, you know, the, the marine omega-3s in fish, actually the reason why fish concentrate those omega-3s so well is because it prevents their cell membranes from freezing in the cold waters. And so if you store it in the freezer, it, tr- it increases its expiration date dramatically, about threefold, and it reduces its susceptibility to oxidation. And then you don't want to store your krill oil in the freezer because of the phospholipids, which can break if you freeze and refreeze it. Hmm. So you want to store your krill oil in the refrigerator. Super interesting. Are there, um, I'm assuming you're not affiliated with any, any brands. If you are, it's okay. But are there any, uh, like brand recommendations that you can, that you can make? Like, what do you take? I mean, I'm, I'm not affiliated with any, uh, brands, but, um, I will say that life extension omega threes are good because again, they are wild sourced. They're, um, they actually use the, the olive oil leaf polyphenols in there, um, to help prevent oxidation. And they actually use a dark capsule as well to prevent the oil from further oxidizing from light and thing and things like that. Um, and then krill oil, you really want Antarctic krill oil. Um, you can get krill oil from like Pacific oceans, but you're going to get a lot more antioxidants, a lot more astaxanthin if you source your krill oil from Antarctic krill. Um, so that's kind of, you definitely want an Antarctic krill oil versus like a Pacific ocean krill oil. This is all such great information. Let's uh, switch gears for a moment and talk a little bit about bad fats because we've spent a lot of time talking about the value of omega-3s and getting fairly high dose omega-3s. But what would you say are uh, the bad fats in the the modern diet? Yeah. Well, I mean, the story of how we even got bad fats into the diet is very interesting. And I think it's important for people to know where these bad fats even kind of began in our history. And so, what ended up happening is sort of our own technological advancement was sort of like our downfall for our own nutritional health because when the cotton gin was invented in the United States in the late 1700s, basically we were only producing 600 pounds of cotton before the cotton gin. And then within nine years, we were then producing 40 million pounds of cotton. And what ended up happening is for every 100 pounds of cotton you produce, you have 160 pounds of cotton seed. And you only needed to use about 5% of those seeds to plant the new crop. So you have an industry where you have all these cotton seeds, you're just throwing them out. Mm -hmm. And so Procter & Gamble, they come along and they start extracting the oil from those cotton seeds to use for candles and lighting in homes in the United States. And this is kind of like the start of the whole omega-6 industry. And what ended up happening is you had oil struck in the mid-1800s, which replaced cottonseed oil for lighting homes. 
And so now you have Procter and Gamble, they have all this cottonseed oil and they have nothing to do with it. They have no use for it. And so luckily a German chemist, Wilhelm Norman, he basically discovered um, partial hydrogenation where you could basically take vegetable oil, take heat, a catalyst, and add hydrogen to the vegetable oil and form a solid fat. And so Procter & Gamble bought those rights, bought the patent, opened up their own plant in 1910 and created Crisco in 1911, which was crystallized cottonseed oil. So now you have a solid fat from cottonseed oil that is much cheaper than animal fats. And it was being touted by Procter & Gamble in the early 1900s that it's better for your health, you know, your, your teeth are healthier, your skin glows on it. They could say whatever they wanted because none of these claims were regulated back then. And they created their own basically um, pam pamphlets of, you know, cooking recipes, everything with you, – you had to use Crisco with those recipes, right? Or they would put out these pamphlets and gave them away to free uh, – for free to Americans to the point where by 1916 – we were they were selling 60 million pounds of Crisco every year. Um, and, and that just went up and up and up. So you had these partially hydrogenated cottonseed oil Crisco replacing the animal fats. And so that's one of the bad fats is these omega-6 vegetable oils, which can either be partially hydrogenated to form solid fats like Crisco. Or the oil, the vegetable oils that you see on the shelf now, like the corn oils, soybean oils of, of today, um, those are bad fats. And the reason is, is because if you actually look at how these omega-6s are extracted, you can't just like take a cotton seed or a sunflower seed or a safflower seed and squeeze it and get oil to come out of it. <laughs> it's multi-million dollar machinery to do it. And so they have to use highly toxic solvents like hexane to even get the oil out in high pressure and high heat. And you're, you're doing this to a very highly susceptible fat to oxidation already. And so it's such a, it's so toxic after they finally are able to extract it, they literally have to deodorize it or it would smell rancid. And you're mm -hmm. throwing these oxidized omega-6 oils in clear plastic bottles and they just sit on the grocery shelf 24 seven being exposed to light and further oxidizing in the bottle. And then you decide that they're healthy because the American heart association is telling you that they're heart healthy. And you decide to cook with these oils, further oxidizing the oil. And it gets worse because when it hits the stomach acid, you further oxidize the linoleic acid. So these, these omega-6 oils are high in the omega-6 fat linoleic acid. And it's highly susceptible to oxidation. And when you when you consume them, even if you consume an organic, cold-pressed canola or sunflower oil, this is a very isolated, highly susceptible to oxidation oil. And when it hits your stomach acid, it forms lipid hydroperoxides and aldehydes. And that further damages your stomach, your intestine, and it hits the portal circulation. So... What ends up happening, I know I know you kind of wanted to know the, the bad fats, but I kind of want to tell people why vegetable oils are so bad. So I'm going to walk people through what happens when you consume these oils. Yes, please. Yep. So not only are you now consuming this highly oxidized omega-6 oil, 
But now what ends up happening is those oxidation products basically damage the intestine and cause bacterial endotoxin to hit the portal circulation. And so what ends up happening is you have these macrophages called Kupfer cells that live in the liver sinusoids. And they see the bacterial endotoxin or LPS, lipopolysaccharide, um, because these omega-6 oils damage the gap junctions in your intestine and can cause bacterial endotoxin to leak, to leak out and it hits the liver. You get this immune response and it's right in the liver because those Kupfer cells live right in the liver sinusoids and they're releasing superoxide anions, which are highly toxic because they see this foreign substance um, and they're trying to attack it. And that oxidation is occurring right in the liver. And so that leads to fatty liver and liver inflammation. So that's just the, the oxidized oils that are kind of basically hitting the intestine, causing damage um, directly to the intestinal lining, which is obviously can potentially lead to ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, things like that. But then your own immune system is being activated in the liver. And now you're damaging your liver because you have an overimmune response to what's going on. But it gets worse. Now the omega-6 that you eat gets incorporated into, packaged into chylomicrons, which then begin packaged into VLDL, LDL, and HDL. So the linoleic acid, the omega-6 fat that you eat from these vegetable oils, gets saturated in all your lipoproteins. And the problem with that is, again, omega-6 is highly susceptible to oxidation. So when you saturate these lipoproteins with linoleic acid, they're much more susceptible to oxidation. So now you're triggering and increasing your risk of heart disease because all your lipoproteins, and it's it's honestly way worse to have LDL oxidized than or uh, VLDL to oxidize than LDL because VLDL holds a lot more triglyceride. It is like a tremendous fat bomb going off if you have VLDL oxidizing, and that's exactly what linoleic acid does when you consume it via these sea oils. Hmm. But it gets worse. The again, we talked about these omega. Th- fats, especially these longer chain omega fats, getting incorporated into the cell membrane. And so these oxidized linoleic acids, they're getting into your cell membrane and they're going to stay there until you recycle them. So take the red blood cells, for example. They have a, they have a lifespan of three to four months. So you're, you have this highly oxidized linoleic acid in the cell membrane that's just sitting with you for three to four months, you know, leading to God knows what type of damage. But what ends up happening is those fatty acid tails that become oxidized, they they begin to curl up and it, it actually forms pores in the cell membrane. So now you have things that shouldn't be coming into the cell membrane, coming into the cell membrane, but it gets worse because you also have cell membranes in your mitochondria. And so now you are damaging the mitochondrial cell membrane. So you're damaging the DNA of your own cell and the DNA of your mitochondria, but it gets a lot worse. Wow. You have linoleic acid that then gets stored in your adipocytes. And unfortunately, the stored linoleic acid has a half-life of two years. So when I'm when I'm saying when you consume these oils, they literally change you from the inside out. They absolutely do. And it stays with you for a really long time. Where I mean sugar's bad, but at least sugar you burn through it. Like the damage occurs acutely. It's not sitting with you for up to, you know, two, three, four years causing damage. And the problem too is when the linoleic acid gets into the fat cell, we used to think fat cells were inert and didn't do anything and just sat there. 
The problem is, is they don't. They spit out a lot of inflammatory cytokines. So when you consume these high omega-6 seed oils, it's the linoleic acid and the oxidized linoleic acid gets into the fat cell, stimulates the immune cells like macrophages to come into the fat cell, um, causing damage, causing hypertrophy, and causing your fat cells to become inflammatory and secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines causing systemic inflammation. So I know that's a really that's a, that's a lot of mechanistic stuff, but I know I think it's important for people to understand what you put in your mouth has effects throughout your entire body and long lasting effects at that. Dude, it's it's terrifying. It's like the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> it, it really <laughs> consuming is like the, that, consuming these fats. Like the few seconds of you know, like you, you bite into that pie that's made of Crisco and it tastes so good, but then it's just sitting in your brain damaging you for months. It's just, it makes you think about the fat, like, you know, what you're consuming. It makes you like take a second look at what you're doing to your body. So, I mean, you know, in, in biology, there's a saying that the dose makes the poison. Is there no safe level of consumption for these fats? Or, I mean, is it, if we stack our bodies with enough, enough antioxidant capability, we're consuming our astaxanthin, our omega threes, and you end up at a restaurant, and you get a you know sautéed vegetable dish. You know that they're sautéing their vegetables in these super unhealthy grain and seed oils, canola oil, if you're lucky. To be totally honest, yeah. Can you have a meal here and there that has a little bit of canola oil in it and be okay? Like, what's the what's the cost? Yeah. Max, the reason why I love talking to you is because you honestly think exactly like me, and so. I've always thought like, how do I figure out a way to combat these omega-6 seed oils? And you kind of bring up an important point is even if you think you're eating healthy, you're eating fresh food, um, you, let's say you go to a restaurant, everything is like 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 a whole food type of substance. They're, they're generally cooking those in these omega-6 vegetable oils. And so I started kind of doing some research, what can help combat that damage? Because for, for most people, you know, they're going to eventually eat out, you know, and, and what can you do to kind of combat the, the damage from those seed oils? And there's a few things that you can do that that, that clinical studies show benefit. Um, one is glycine. Supplemental glycine has been shown to prevent the damage from seed oils as well as sugar. So glycine is the main amino acid that makes up collagen, um, which is important for the, the lining, the epithelial cells of your intestine. And so they improve the lining of that. Um, they improve um, the mucus lining as well of your intestine. Glycine does. And glycine is an anti-inflammatory amino acid. It forms um, glutathione along with cysteine and glutamate. Uh, and so most people's diets are pretty low in glycine because it's found in collagenous meats, which we don't really consume anymore. Um, so supplemental glycine seems to prevent the harms from seed oils in animal studies. We don't have human studies to show that, but there's good reason that it would do the same in human studies. We definitely have many human studies showing that glycine is beneficial. I've published a few review papers on glycine. And so it's been shown, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 grams a day, taken three to four times a day. So five grams, three to four times a day to hit 15 to 20 grams total has been shown to have a lot of benefits, blood pressure, lowering, lowering A1C in diabetics, you know, lowering auditory neuropathy and diabetes as well, and many, many other benefits. Um, the other supplement that I take, so I take glycine before I go out to a restaurant. 
So is this like a just a collagen powder, or you is can it? Take a- it in, yeah, you can you can find glycine powder, or you can just take it in capsule. I like to take it in capsule because glycine, it's it's sweet, but it has a funky aftertaste to it. Um, so, you know, you can throw it in a smoothie and kind of mask it that way as well. But I just like popping pills. Like I'll, I'll take a one gram, five, one gram glycine pills and I'm good to go. And then, um, the other supplement that has been shown to benefit and reduce the damage of seed oils in numerous animal studies is spirulina and spirulina. Um, it's a blue green algae and, um, it has tremendous antioxidant effects and it, it seems to be like a bilirubin mimetic. Um, so, so basically spirulina, um, you know, it has something called phycocyanobilin, um, which is a protein and it contains, um, basically, you know, it gives it the, the blue color that it has. And so it has a lot of antioxidant effects. It contains chlorophyll, um, and, and the phycocyanobilin is, um, it kind of like takes in the UV radiation. And when you consume it, you convert it to phycocyanorubin and it's a bilirubin mimetic. And bilirubin is basically how hormesis works. When you get oxidative stress, you upregulate bilirubin, which has a tremendous amount of antioxidant potential, but you can just kind of do that similarly by just taking spirulina. About six grams is what I take before I'll go out and eat at a restaurant. And then as you said, astaxanthin is going to help too. So you know, krill oil or astaxanthin supplements, um, you know, can potentially help too. Bilirubin, I think of as being a waste product. Yeah, most people do. So most people do. So there's something called Gilbert syndrome where Mm -hmm. they can't get rid of the bilirubin um, as well. And so they have elevated bilirubin levels. It just so happens that people with Gilbert syndrome, it's not a bad thing. It actually seems to be kind of fantastic. Their age-adjusted mortality is half that of the general population because they have elevated bilirubin levels, which is an antioxidant and basically how spirulina works. Um, and so you can almost have, you can almost induce bilirubin or a Gilbert syndrome in a person by kind of giving them spirulina and hmm. your body converting it to a bilirubin mimetic. But like people who are jaundiced basically have yeah. a, a buildup of bilirubin in the blood. You can. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you should go, you know, to the doctor for, cause that's yep. generally, generally considered not a good thing. Correct. Man, we're almost out of time. Um, we've covered so much ground. Like, I'm sure we could go on and talk for hours and hours and hours. But if we've missed anything, please, every time we talk, you're always such a wealth of knowledge. So, so I mean, right, uh, right back at you, brother. Yeah, the, I mean, the one thing I think we're, we didn't really touch on is well, there's a huge problem right now that I've noticed. And not just right now. I mean, this has been happening over 70 years is our food is literally at least half as nutritious as it was 70 years ago. Hmm. Just from you know, you know, soil depletion, um, you have basically glyphosate that combines some of these minerals. If you look, um, there's studies from the 1940s comparing the food to today, just over the last 70 years, the food is about 50% nutritious across the board. So you have reductions in magnesium, copper, all these minerals. And the problem is, is that God knows how much less nutritious that back in the 1940s, that food was compared to what we evolved on, right? If we're 50% less nutritious just 70 years ago, how much less nutritious was that food versus 2 million years ago or 100,000 years ago? So when you start thinking about it in the context of we are consuming food now that is vitamin and mineral depleted from what we evolved on, and you look at it from the viewpoint of fats, and you start looking at how our fats are 
elongated, they are highly dependent on desaturase enzymes and elongase enzymes, which are dependent on vitamins and minerals. And so I think what's going on too, um, and I kind of go over this in the book, is that when you're consuming these isolated oils, you're not getting the vitamins and minerals that are found that are cofactors for these enzymes to help you do what you need to do with those fats. So you have the parent omega-6 linoleic acid and you have the parent omega-3 alpha linolenic acid. And the first enzyme that desaturates those, those fats is delta-6 desaturase, and it's highly dependent on magnesium and zinc. And about 80% of the population is now magnesium deficient. Um, and so your, your ability to now desaturate and elongate these fats and form healthy intermedi intermediary fats. So not all omega-6 is bad and not linoleic acid isn't bad either. It's important. Um, and it forms arachidonic acid, which again, that is not bad either. It's when you have inflammation that causes you to over-oxidize those fats, which is a problem. But going back to the vitamin mineral depletion, now, now that 80% of the population is magnesium deficient, you're not able to convert the linoleic acid to healthy fats like GLA, which is gamma linolenic acid, which then gets converted to DGLA or dihomo gamma linolenic acid. And that intermediary omega-6 fat gets converted into a healthy prostaglandin called prostaglandin E1, which is vasodilatory. It has antiplatelet effects. So it helps lower blood pressure, helps reduce clotting. Um, and the problem is too, is that in order for you to convert DGLA to that healthy prostaglandin, you need high amounts of vitamin C. And so our ability to metabolize these fats and, and form all these healthy prostaglandins from them is all skewed and out of whack because we're eating high amounts of omega-6, which competes with omega-3. And so you're not forming those longer chain omega-3s as well, but also because the vitamins and minerals aren't there for your enzymes to work them properly. So that, that's, I think that's a huge issue. It is a huge issue. I know Donald Davis, biochemist at University of Texas, quantified a lot of the, the uh, nutrient losses that have occurred over the past 70 years. It's, um, it's staggering. And I think and even, even potentially even worse than the, the mineral and vitamin depletion of our food is the damage that our food is doing to our intestines and our kidneys. So now you can't even absorb those minerals well, and you can't even reabsorb them in the kidneys. So take, for example, salt. Your body filters over three pounds of salt every single day, and it has to reabsorb all of it. Otherwise, it spills out in the urine. And so when you start damaging um, the cells in the kidneys that reabsorb salt, copper, um, a bunch of other minerals, you literally start spilling them out into the urine. And so when people have like diabetic microalbuminuria, where you're spilling albumin in the urine, there's a bunch of minerals that are attached and carried by albumin. So these diabetics are literally losing copper, zinc through the albumin that's spilling out of their kidneys. So I think that's actually probably the biggest issue. The damage that is being caused from these omega-6 seed oils and sugar and processed foods and persistent organic pollutants is damaging our body that we can't even absorb, hold onto, and use the vitamins and minerals that we're supposed to. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, hopefully with your book, Superfuel, listeners are going to 
be able to pick that up, get a really comprehensive breakdown of all this stuff along with a diet plan. Is that what what it offers? Yes, it does. Yep. And of course, listeners can also pick up Genius Foods. I know that you and I are aligned in many ways, but um, but I definitely recommend if you're listening to check out uh, James's work, follow him on Twitter, follow him on Instagram, pick up his book. He is, you know, always such a wealth of knowledge and uh, you're invited back whenever you want to come back. Um, So I'm going to ask you the last question. But before we get to that, where can listeners find you um, out there in the ether of the Internet? Yeah. So people, they can follow me on social media, Dr. James Dineck. Um, I'll have a website up shortly, just Dr. James Dineck, D-I-N-I-C.com. And then people can pick up my books, The Salt Fix and Superfuel on Amazon or, you know, the Superfuel being you know, Barnes Noble and stuff like that. So, and also guys, um, Dr. DeNicola Antonio is a, uh, very prolific research scientist. So I highly recommend going and reading some of his, um, academic work. You know, I love following you on, on Twitter and, and reading all of your, um, studies. Very interesting and, um, very thorough. So thank you for uh, doing the work that you do. Of course. Uh, last question. So this is a question I ask to everybody that's, uh, on the show. What does it mean to you to live like a genius? Yeah, that's great. Um, it's really thinking about everything um, that I put into my mouth as well as what I'm doing for my body um, in regards to outside stimulus. So um, whether it's sunlight or sleep or exercise, I consciously try to take a step back from my busy day and, and kind of say, what am I doing for my own health right now? And what do I need to do today, tomorrow, the next day to improve it? Wonderful. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and also, which I forgot to mention earlier in the show, this is your second appearance on this podcast. You're one of the very few um, repeat guests so far. You guys can go back and listen to uh, an entire conversation that we had about salt. It's episode number seven of The Genius Life, Why You Probably Need to Eat More Salt. Uh, this was about James's um, prior book, The Salt Fix. Uh, but dude, Superfuel is an incredible feat. Thank you for doing all of the, uh, the research. And I look forward to chatting with you again. And for all of you guys out there listening in podcast land, this has been another episode of The Genius Life. Peace.